Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. December 24th, 2023, episode 232, Remembering Kim. Hello everyone, a pleasant day to you all on this Christmas Eve day here from New Jersey. I am Kevin England and I am here to share a treasure of the past in remembrance of Kim Flottam, who as noted on the last episode passed away recently. I mentioned in the last show that I might have a recording in the vault from Kim and After a moment's poking around, I found the recording and I want to play it for you. This is an odd moment for me as I'm going to do something that I would consider an exception, which is to play someone's presentation audio in a public forum. It's a bit squishy for me. I often record presentations I sit in on so I can listen to them later for the point of being able to cover them. I want to make sure that the points I capture when talking in the podcast about what someone said are right, and sometimes I even re-listen to different passages multiple times to ensure that I get everything right. The point of what I'm talking about is I don't usually intend to take someone's work and publish them in a public forum. I will say, In all of my years of sitting in on hundreds of presentations, there's only been one person who took issue with being recorded. I try to make it a point to clarify with presenters, if I can, as to whether we can record them or not, especially if we pay for them to come and present for us. Almost universally, the answer is sure, go ahead. But that being said, one presenter many years ago surprised me by being the first to ever tell me no. And if I'm being honest, the fact of the matter was he was a total jerk about it. He lectured me for a few minutes about how it was totally unacceptable. I recall thinking at the time, I wonder if he's ever going to take a moment to recognize that I paid him the courtesy of even asking. It's not an uncommon thing. To see people with little mini recorders out sitting on desks when lectures are going on. And, you know, fact of the matter is I saw a few that day and somewhat smirked. And for the record, I did not record him. Moving on. Because of this, it's always been in the back of my mind that I'm not overly sure what the etiquette is for doing what I'm about to do. I suspect that I'm in my head about this as most of us would not fuss over playing an old recording, but I respect the work that goes into content creation, so I'm always considerate of it. I think I've mentioned this before that I likely have dozens of recordings, so I guess they're kind of like beekeeping bootlegs. Perhaps someday, like in this instance, they will be comforting to have. When I'm old and gray, I will be able to listen to recordings of some of the best beekeepers I've encountered. Both the notable ones and the not-so-famous ones. And be able to appreciate the knowledge they impart, much like this day was with Kim. This was pre-pandemic, and Kim's talk was of the future. I listened to the recording to clean it up some. And I feel like it's a great representation of how I thought of Kim on the whole. 
I love the passion that comes out, the conviction to his analysis, his conversational style and pure interest in the subjects he presented. It sums up kind of what I thought about and appreciated about him. You know, I also want to take a moment to thank the Maryland Beekeeping Club who hosted Kim three times, if I recall, on that day. Once at a university, once at a community college, and then again at a state meeting the following day. Small clubs, state organizations, large regional conferences, they're a core piece to the backbone of educating beekeepers. And this meeting was, well, no exception. This recording was captured on Valentine's Day, February 14, 2020, at the Howard Community College. We were in some hall, I don't know the name of it. And I want to say that this was the last public gathering, as far as beekeeping meetings go, that I participated in pre-pandemic. Okay, I'm going to stop talking and let you soak it in. Before I go, I will simply say, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Godspeed, Peter Kim Flottam. Okay, next speaker is going to be uh, Kim Flottam. He's going to speak to us this afternoon to us about beekeeping 2020, what's in it on the horizon for this year and for next. Beekeeping 2020, not long ago I was asked to speak to a group of people who know enough about bees and beekeeping to know that they don't know nearly enough and they wanted to know more, they wanted to know what is and what probably is going to happen. And shortly after that I went to April Monday of 2019 up in, up in Montreal and, and I kind of put these two experiences together. I want to tell you about going to a bee meeting and, and <clears throat> today is a perfect example. You're in here listening to people tell you what is, right? We've done the research, we've done, we've collected the data, we've analyzed the data, we've made it available to you, this is what is. The people out in the vendor area, <clears throat> these are the people that are telling you what is going to be. They're betting on the future. And when I was at April Monday, there were 200 and some vendors, and I spent five days walking in the vendor area. So I took that experience, talking to all of these people about what they think is going to be, and I took the information that I gathered, uh, looking at, at honey health, the pollination business, enough safe food, too much honey, and not enough bees, in the status of the industry as it is today, and kind of married the two, and hopefully what, I, what, we'll leave, what you'll leave here with today is somewhat of a picture of not so much what is, but what I'm thinking, and what a lot of other people who contributed to this are thinking about what's going to happen next month, next year, next three or four years. So taking a look at that, <coughs> let's find this button. you gotta have, you got to have healthy bees in a clean home, and we've heard that today again and again and again and again. And, and I don't have the answer to that, but I know that now people are, at least enough people are aware of the fact that there's trouble at home. And, and you just heard about synthetic wax. I don't know the answer to this, but the people that I used to work for who worry about beeswax, the beekeeping industry, everybody that I know that's dealing with beeswax knows that there's a problem, and nobody has an answer, but at least people know it exists and that they're looking. I don't know. We tried and tried and tried ways to clean up beeswax to get the stuff out of there. 
We can get it all out of there if you want, but what's left isn't beeswax. That's the problem. So how they're going to resolve this, I'm not sure how they're going to resolve this, but at least they're looking and at least they're worried about it. And that to me gives me, once you've identified the problem you, and, and you know that you've got to fix that problem, you're halfway home. You're, you know that at least people are going in the right direction. I want to talk, talk about the business of pollination a little bit. Uh, right now, almonds are blooming. Two million plus colonies are sitting in California and the San Joaquin Valley from Bakersford to San Francisco. And there are 2.3 million, million colonies in the U.S. So you can tell what, how much influence almonds have on the beekeeping industry. That isn't going to change. Or maybe it is. And here's where, here's where people are looking at changing the pollination business of almonds because it is such a big influence on the almond industry, on agriculture in California, the beekeeping industry, honey production, and global honey production. It's affecting every one of those industries. When an almond blooms, the whole world takes notice. And here's why. There's several things that are going on. Right now, almonds take up a lot of water. It takes about a half a gallon of water to make an almond. And when you look at how many gallons of water are going into almonds, California is going, wait a minute. Maybe we should be looking at that resource also when it comes to what we're thinking about almonds. That's one issue going on with almonds. Almond growers are looking at 250 bucks a colony. And they're saying, okay, I can absorb this for now because the world demand for, the world demand for almonds continues to increase incrementally every year. We keep making more money so I can afford to pay more money, but that's going to hit a ceiling. At some point in time, that's going to hit a ceiling and either stay there or begin to decline. So the almond industry is looking at how can I reduce those costs? How can I hold those costs stable? So they're looking at that as an issue. Beekeepers are looking at, at the same time, their business is, let's see, I make more money pollinating almonds than I do anything else the rest of the year. I pollinate cucumbers or blueberries or canola or whatever it is that I'm pollinating, but almonds is the top of the pile. Almonds is as good as it gets. Without almonds, I'm not in business. So they're looking at not, not only have, not having this decline, but increase. So you've got several factors and several forces working at this at the same time. And then, as I mentioned, the global demand for almonds with what's going on in China right now. China is the biggest almond purchaser in the U.S., that the U.S. has. If that demand goes down 10% or 50% next year because of all the things going on with this virus around the world and this doesn't seem to be going away, I don't know what's going to happen, but, and neither does China and neither do the almond growers and neither does the ag industry in California. All of these people are betting that it isn't going to change. Add to that, are there ways to reduce the cost of pollination? And the answer is yes without having to have more bees or fewer bees or whatever it is you want. And if you've been paying, if you've been looking at all at what the almond industry is doing, they're looking at mechanical pollination of almond trees. They've got drones about this big that are loading up pollen, hovering over almond orchards, apple orchards, peach orchards, cherry orchards. They drop that pollen, they can do it 24 7, 365. They don't care if it's raining, they don't care if it's snowing, they don't care if it's night. They can pollinate an almond tree anytime you want that almond tree pollinated for 10% of the cost. 
So the oil industry is looking at this and they're going, okay, let's talk. Because suddenly I'm looking at $50, $30 to $50 a tree to pollinate, or a, 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 the equivalent of a beehive, $30 to $50 versus $250. What's wrong with this picture and what can we do to fix it? Now, immediately you say, okay, I gotta have 8 million pounds of, of almond pollen, right? Well, they're growing 8 million pounds of almond pollen. There are pollen orchards in California right now that are grown specifically and only to produce pollen. That pollen is being harvested both manually and recent border issues have, have challenged that, but it are also being, uh, pollen is also being harvested mechanically. The efficiency of the mechanics isn't great yet, but if you've got hundreds and hundreds of trees in that orchard, the efficiency is less important than the fact that you can do it. So all the growers are looking at, okay, I need to save water, and the Department of Agriculture is jumping on my back. That To do that, I have to save money. I can save money by not paying beekeepers because I can do almond pollination. I can do almond pollination mechanically, and I can do it faster, and it's, believe it or not, better. So the almond growers are looking, well, let's talk. Okay, beekeepers, let's talk. So what else, what else are beekeepers up against? So there's one challenge right there in the pollination business from the beekeeping industry in this U.S. It's the fact that the people that they're servicing right now are looking for ways to get rid of them or reduce the cost or reduce their exposure to honeybees and, and pollination. When you look at what a, what a beehive goes through to pollinate, this may not be such a bad thing. You know, I mean, you, you, you saw that picture this morning right there. I'm sharing everything bad with every bee in the, in the U.S. by bringing my bees out to almonds and, and hold, putting them in holding yards and putting them in orchards. And now I've got every disease every one of you has in that beehive, and I'm putting them in my bees and I'm taking them home. So I'm fighting all of your battles all season long. Maybe not going out there isn't such a bad idea, right? You think it might not be so? Not only that, I got the sharing stress and then there's food. Now, the, one of the good things going on is the almond growers and some of the other groups up there, out there are looking at this finally. And there's, you know, how much food is out there for bees? Say none, because it's none. There's nothing for them to eat. The only thing that they're getting to eat is pollen substitute and high fructose corn syrup that the beekeepers are pumping into them to keep them alive until bloom starts. Boy, I tell you, almond bloom is the best food you can get. That's one of the best resources for pollen and nectar bees run into in a year. It's really good, but you got to get them there. They got to be alive long enough to get to that to get to that blossom. So what people are finally beginning to do, almond growers among them, spending money to plant food for bees before they go into the almonds and while they're in the almonds. And does that make sense? I want my bees to pollinate almonds, but on the floor I am planting pollinator plants? Yes, it does. It makes perfect sense because almonds are done blooming, the almonds are done shedding pollen, and now almonds are done shedding nectar, producing nectar about two in the afternoon. What do they do the rest of the day? Right there. They're eating more different, uh, better food for them than even almonds are. So the almond growers finally got wise. They're spending some money. So beekeepers aren't, aren't killing their bees. They're just stressing the heck out of them, but not quite so much anymore. So that's a good thing going on with almonds. 
uh, right now. It's going on right now. But how, you know, there's two million acres that they got to plant here. And the almond growers, I say two million acres per acre, and I got to maintain it, and then in three years I got to replant. Hey, wait a minute. It's an experiment waiting to fail or waiting to succeed, but it's an experiment right now. And I don't know, they don't know if it's going to work, if it's going to last. But at least somebody's looking at it and trying. The one thing that they ran into in almonds about five years ago, oh, maybe more than that, was uh, beekeepers would bring their bees to almonds. They would do just fine. They'd bring them home. They'd start raising queens. And about three to six weeks after they were in almonds, maybe as much as three or four months after they were in almonds, those bees would start tipping over. And, and so I've been gone for four months. Most beekeepers didn't coordinate the fact that my bees are dying now with something I did four months ago. And what they were finding out was that it was, a, it was legal to spray certain pesticides on almonds during bloom, and it was legal to spray certain fungicides on almonds during bloom, but when they put the two together, it was a toxic soup. And bees are bringing it home and storing it three to four months, three to six weeks, whatever it was later, they were eating this toxic soup and dying, and or losing their queens, and or not able to raise brood, and or bad. So they finally found that out, but it took them five years. Uh, one of the researchers at Ohio State was responsible for finding part of that, so we were kind of in on the bottom of this, but this is one of the things that they cured, but you know what? Almond growers still have to deal with the insects that were causing them to spray pesticides and the fungus that were causing them to spray fungicides and not everybody's on the same page out there. It's still happening, it's still happening. There's still pesticide stress going on to bees and beekeepers when they're in almonds. Uh, there's enough money though, still. 250 bucks a colony is about what they're paying this year. And, and that's what's keeping our commercial beekeeping beekeepers in business right now, is that money from almonds from almond pollination. And there's another story here going on with almond pollination that I want to get to in just a minute, but let's take a look at this. Enough safe food. You can take a look at that map, and I apologize, you probably, I can read it from here. I don't know if you can read, but how land, uses, how land is used. And one of the things that I want to point out is that we lose farmland every day. You know that. Somebody puts in a gas station, another, another three miles of road, an entry ramp, uh, no housing development. We lose about 20 acres of farmland a minute in this country. How many minutes have you been here today? How many acres of farmland have we lost? I don't do the map. I don't know how long you've been here, but you can do the map. How much farmland is not being, is not producing an arable crop or a forage crop or something that we can use or eat that comes from agriculture since you got here this morning and that's what bees and beekeepers are facing every day. Every day, 20 acres a minute, go away. How long can we sustain this? How long do we want to sustain it? Do we want to sustain it? I don't know the answer to that, but that's what, that's what, farmers, that's what farmers are looking at available land to expand, available good land to expand to. And what happens is, of course, when 
you want to expand and you're losing 20 acres of farmland a minute and you want to expand, where can you go? Well, the only place you can go is a farmland that nobody else wanted before. So any expansion that we're doing or any, any catching up that we're doing is in land that is essentially, I'm not going to say worthless, it's not worthless, but it's not nearly the quality of land that we lost 20 minutes ago. So take a look at, take a look at farmland loss. A thousand acres by the time I'm done talking about this today. A thousand acres. How big is a thousand acres? A football field is 5,000 square feet, an acre is 43,000, so if an, acre is a, an acre is about a football field. That's how much land we lost. By the time I sit down here this afternoon, that many thousand football fields are going to be gone. Moving on to domestic honey consumption. Um, we keep eating more and more and more honey in this country. And if it was our honey, it would be really good. We'd all be rich. There would be, everybody here would have 20 colonies instead of two or three because you could be selling it for five or six or $10 a pound in a barrel instead of, it costs a U.S. beekeeper, commercial beekeeper, about $2.50 to produce a pound of honey. About two fifty. That's all of the costs, labor and chemicals and moving and everything else. About two fifty a pound. I can buy. I could buy. I could buy with the contacts that I have from my job. I could buy before I got home today. A container load of honey from India that had been scrubbed of pesticides and color for forty cents a pound. And I could have it delivered to some some. Some research, someplace here on the East Coast and shipped to someplace in the Midwest and it would be on a grocery store shelf before the 1st of June. At, I paid 40 cents a pound and I'm going to charge the people who have ultimately put it on the grocery store shelf paid less than a dollar a pound to put it there. The people in India who produced this, I'm not going to say beekeepers, the people in India who produced this made money I made money, the grocery store made money, and the people who ate it said, I don't, like, I don't like this honey all that much. I wish I could find some natural, but they can't because none of us are making honey anymore. None of us commercial beekeepers because I can spend my resources pollinating. Why should I, why should I make honey at two fifty dollars a pound competing against $0.40 cent a pound when I can pollinate for $250 a colony? The math gets real, real simple. I'm not an Excel spreadsheet person. I'm not an economist. But this is pretty brain-dead simple of how I'm going to run my business. And that's what beekeepers are looking at right now. Domestic honey consumption is up, way up. Domestic honey production is flat to declining. The imports, I was talking to a, a person who does this for a living, who deals with importing food. And honey is a specialty, not his only crop. But he's got a saying that makes perfect sense. He says, there's no ceiling to the amount of foreign honey we will import, and there is no basement to the price that we will charge you for it. And that's exactly what's going on in the honey industry with, with imports and exports. And the other thing that he puts into that equ equation is he says, I, just, I pretty much bet you across the board that more than 95% of the stuff that's coming in is contaminated adulterated. He has a three-word vocabulary, ceiling, basement, and adulterated. And he's exactly right. 
the stuff that's coming in. The tests that we've been running in the U.S., the government has no definition of honey. We're close. We're a lot closer today than we were even two weeks ago, and we may get there before summer. But we have no definition of what honey is that anybody can enforce. So I can send anything in, and it kind of meets this definition, and the guys who are checking it at the port go, yep, says honey, tastes like honeycomb. That's pretty much what we go. We've got a... We've got something now called a CID, a Commodity Identification Form, that's like 14 pages long of two-point type. We finally have a good, good, workable definition of honey. They know what it is, and not only they know what they know what it is, they know how to test it. They're saying you have to test it and do this test, and this test, and this test, and this test, and this test, and, and you have to pass them all before we will say, yes, this is honey, and yes, we will let this into the U.S. labeled as honey. That's going to make a difference. But it's not there yet, and it hasn't made a difference because we haven't had one forever. So that CID is going to change things. And you can see the, the, the HPLC and all of the methods of testing that they're going to bring into this equation. It's going to make a big difference relative to what's coming into this country and what beekeepers could do. And then there's... Not enough bees. So I'm a commercial beekeeper, and I'm looking at what I, the money I can make on pollination, pretty good money. I'm losing money making honey. It cost me $2.50. I got to compete with a guy that's selling it for 40 cents. I've got all of these bees. Oh, the math gets real simple again, doesn't it? What should I be selling? Bees. How many people here are going to buy packages this spring? and nukes and how many how many people in the u.s there are not enough bees in this country every spring ever there hasn't been for years and years there's not enough bees for packages not enough bees for nukes not enough bees for queen production not enough bees for other pollination there's not enough bees so if i'm a commercial beekeeper and i've got lots and lots and lots of bees i can pollinate some things this summer i can pollinate cucumbers in ohio or maybe here but I can take all of those bees, I can put them in little tiny containers, and I can sell them to you for $150 a package. Let's see, bees at 30 or $50 a pound or honey at 40 cents a pound. The math doesn't add up, does it? Suddenly, bees look really, really attractive. And that's what's keeping our industry afloat right now, is bees. Commercial beekeepers selling bees to you and to me and packages, selling bees to, to uh, package producers, to sell, selling bees to queen producers so they've got enough selling bees. So that's the change that's gone on in our industry relative to what's going on and how things are. And, and if you've got one colony and you're just starting out, this is your first year, this is going to change what you're doing coming up this summer and this fall and this winter. If you don't take care of mites, your bees are going to die. If you're going to stay in beekeeping, you're going to buy a package next spring. Thank you. I'll sell you one for $150. No problem. And I've got them because I'm not doing anything else with my bees this year. So that's what I was telling these people when they asked me to, when they asked me to talk about what I saw as what's going on in the beekeeping industry. And that's kind of the story. You talk to commercial beekeepers, and that's, that's a generalized story. And then I went to Apamundia. If you know if you know what Apamundia is, it's an international group of beekeepers that meet in a country every other year. 
And this year they were in Montreal, and they bring in between five and 6,000, and they go all over the world. Next year they're in Russia, or next time they're in Russia, and the time after that they're going to be in Chile. So they move all over the place. And <clears throat> as a result, they get input from different aspects. They get North America bees and beekeepers this time. Next time they'll get, they'll get Russian and that part of the world input. Not only that, but, but it'll be in, heavily influenced by where they meet. And Apamundia, and now, now I'll go back to walking, walking around the vendor area. 5,000 people, and they had two floors, and one floor held 200 vendor booths. And a booth at Apamundia was probably about the size of the Man Lake booth out there was the smallest one. That was a one-person, one-table booth. Most of them were multi-people and multi-tables. They were big. They took up like four football fields of floor space. That's how many were there. They were from 150-plus countries, something like that. I think I've got it written down here. They were, they were from all over the world selling everything you can possibly imagine. The big thing that they were, the big thing that I noticed as I'm walking through this football field, multi-football field area, the four things that struck me as being focused on by all, many of these people was honeybee nutrition, artificial intelligence, honey, housing, and wax. I mentioned, I mentioned, I mentioned honey and, and uh, the problems with contaminated honey, but there's other things going on, and uh, nutrition was one of them. There were in this building probably 50 people selling 50 formulas of protein supplement for bees because the world needs that much protein supplement. Bees are demanding that much. Beekeepers want that much. They want to be able to manage their bees, manipulate their bees more. And people who, man who make this stuff are more than happy to help. There was more stuff on the market there than I have ever seen anywhere. It was incredible. Part of this was the probiotic stuff that we were talking about earlier. There's a lot of that going on in the world. The world suddenly woke up to honeybees have to digest food, and, and there's a lot of people out there willing to sell us stuff that makes that allows honeybees to eat food, the probiotic products. There's, I think there was some out here today. But anywhere you open up any of the magazines and you talk, you go to any of the bee supply dealer catalogs, and you're going to now start seeing probiotics take more and more and more shelf space in all of their stores because it works, A, and B, I make a lot of money at it. Easy, to, easy product to sell for these people, and I don't blame them. I would be too if I was in that kind of business. The global honey market, I mentioned already, adulterated, and, and where it comes from, there were probably, I'm, I'm going to say 75 countries that are selling honey, and I would walk up to a booth and I'm, I would say, I'm an American. And boy, did I get a lot of attention, because I am the market. They looked at me like, here's somebody who wants to buy honey and sell it in the U.S. I have honey to sell here. Taste this. you got a sugar buzz walking through that thing that you would not believe. But people were willing to sell me honey. How much? And they go through all of the, the, the import costs and all of that, and it ranged from somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 cents a pound to a buck and a half. <laughs> depending, coming in from offshore, somewhere, from somewhere into the U.S. It was cheap, cheap. How much does it cost you to make a pound of honey? Who's got a number? What? How much? 
$2. I could beat you that by 50 cents. Two bucks a pound. I, I could have bought container loads and barrels and barrels and barrels for a buck a pound. No problem. I didn't have my tester with me to see if this was really honey. I'm going to guess that what they were giving away, what probably was, I'm not sure. Well, you know, wait a minute, let me think about this. The honey show that was at April Monday this year had over 40% of the entries disqualified for being either adulterated or stupid because people ended up with way too much moisture. So, so I don't know the answer to the honey show, but I do know the answer to all of the people who were trying to sell me honey because I was from America. I am the market. We are the market. We are the biggest importer of honey by a factor of four in the world. People want to sell us honey. We have money and we're willing to pay for anything that people will give us. That's the, that's the global view of our honey market because we don't test it. They can sell anything in a barrel that says honey and we will take it, thank you. So they were real eager to sell me honey. So that was, that was one of the major groups of people selling stuff there. Um, the other thing that I wanted to, to look at was artificial intelligence. Part of this was just on the screen here when people were looking at taking data in colonies. And I'm going to bet that when you took your beginner's class, you took really good data for about a month, right? <laughs> Kathy and I have the best data on our colonies for the month of May you can imagine. By July, I can't find the book. And that's way too often the problem. The world is looking to solve that problem for me. Thank you. They want to put they want me to put widgets in my hive that produce that produce data that measures weight, that measures CO2, that measures noise, that analyzes the noise, that measures everything that's going on in the hive, puts it together, sends it to the cloud. The cloud then, in its wisdom, will analyze this data that comes from my hive, and it will take the data that gets from your hive, and your hive, and your hive, and your hive, and it mixes it all together, and it says, when his hive, and his hive, and her hive made this kind of noise, something was going on that probably was affecting the queen. You better pay attention to your queen, because they said that's what happened. I get that. I'm sitting at my computer at 7 o'clock at the night, at night, and my computer tells me that my hive out back is queenless. I go out the next morning, and sure enough, because of the data that the cloud sent me from all of your hives. That's reality right now. That's happening. It's happening. There's companies in Ireland, several in the U.S., several in Mexico, several in Europe, that are gathering multiple beekeeper data analyzing it, coming up with all of the formulas that you need to tell you what's going on in your hive compared to the data that they've gathered from all these other beekeepers. And it will tell you what you want to know, when you want to know it, and what to do next. Thank you. Doesn't cost much either. The widget's about the size of a pack of cigarettes. Do you remember the size of a pack of cigarettes? That's about how big they are. So, so 
the cost is one of two things. The cost is I'm buying the widget and I'm paying to have a solar array or my cell phone or something send that data to the cloud, or I'm buying a service and a satellite coming over and reading that data in my VR. All of this exists. So I can, pay, I can pay a subscription and have that. Every time that satellite goes over, it's reading some data from somewhere. Or every time I turn on my computer, I can go to the cloud and get that data that it gathered in the last five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes ago. I can print it out. I've got a record that looks like this on my highway for the last 11 months. You can do that. That exists, and that's what the world is going to. So when I say when I say what's going on in, in, in at these meetings, the people in the meetings are what is, and the people in the vendor area is what are. There's there's more to this artificial intelligence stuff. There's a program you've seen it advertised, just starting to get advertised in the journals called the Bee App. If you're a commercial beekeeper, this isn't going to work for us. Little guys, but if you're a commercial beekeeper from my cell phone back at the shop, I can tell you where I've got 10 crews up monitoring bee yards. I can tell you where I can tell where every crew is. I can tell what hives they've opened. I can tell what they did. I can tell how much they fed them. I can tell how much honey they harvested. I can tell how many they, beehives they moved because they were dead. I can tell everything. I can tell almost every bathroom break that crew took from my chair back at the shop. All of that data is accessible. This isn't going to the, some of it's going to the cloud, but most of it's just coming back to me and I can start making decisions at the shop on what to tell these people. Okay, go here. Okay, where's here? The guy driving the truck doesn't have a clue, he's never been there. Oh, okay, you hit the button, it provides a map for him, and it shows you a picture of the bee yard so when you get there you know you're at the right place. All from the shop. All of this is possible. Do you know how much labor that program has saved? One beekeeper this year, he has cut his labor costs 70% because he doesn't have people driving around in Southern California not knowing where they are. It's that simple. It's that easy, and it's that scary. Maybe that's the right word. Jerry Bromenshank in Montana has figured out how to put a microphone in a beehive and listen to the noise. He calls it the songs of bees. And after lots and lots of analytical data, he can interpret the sounds that those bees are making. And those bees are talking to him. He has a vocabulary of what those sounds mean. Here's the, here's the trick. The same vocabulary, the same sounds that come from his bees in Montana telling him the same thing that's going on in his hive. I work queenless, we're hungry, it's too warm, it's too cold. He can interpret that data. He can get the same data from bees in New Zealand but they have an accent. <laughs> so suddenly his data is right, but he can't understand what those bees are, and you don't want to hear what they say in France. But he's figured it out. They have an accent. I can learn, my machines can learn to listen to this data, to interpret this data, to tell me that it's too hot in this hive. I need more ventilation and or whatever it is he wants to listen to. The songs of bees. And that is, he can use that data in the U.S. and in France and in Russia and South America and Australia and wherever he wants to put this stuff. He's not there yet, but he's, he can see it from here.
So suddenly, you got to ask, can I talk back? Uh-huh. That's what he's looking at. Okay, you can tell me what you need. Maybe I can tell you what to do about it without it getting out of my chair. Wouldn't that be cool? He's not there yet, but I, I think he can see it from here. So you look at you look at what these machines are telling you. So you've got machines telling you what's going on, and I, now I know there's a problem in a hive, but I can talk back to the bees. Yeah, go down and take that chunk of wax out of, out of the front door and you get more ventilation. Life will be better, right? I don't know if we're going to get there, but i got to bet that all of us are going to be spending more time in our chair looking at the computer tending bees than we are out in the bee yard if we're really serious about doing well with bee health. And don't throw anything at me, okay? <laughs> I've got one of the things down there. Well, the, the companies that, are, that I've got listed there, Bee App, that's the one from Mexico that does all of the crews on the roads. And I've got Hive Tracks. You know Hive Tracks is in the U.S. They're coming up with a genius hive. And, and that ought to scare you. Hive's smarter than you. But that's what it's going to be. And the genius hive is dealing with not only telling you what's going on inside and telling you what you need to know about it, but what you should be doing in a week and a month and six months. It is predicting behavior. It is predicting because it's able to go to the cloud and say, okay, what's the bloom date of whatever it is I'm thinking of? It's come, I know it's coming up. Okay, it's going to be in three weeks. Okay, three weeks, I need this many bees. You don't have this many bees. You need to come, get out here and do something about it. The genius hive is telling us what to do next. That's where they're going. And it's going to make... The goal, of course, is to make beekeeping cheaper, is to make... Managing bees cheaper so we can compete with 40, 40 cent a pound honey. And that's pretty much what people need to do. Because the 40 cent a pound honey, although even with good regulations coming into the U.S., isn't going to go away. One of the things that's happening in the rest of the world is that in the last couple, three years, and it's really only been the last couple, three years, a lot of foreign governments have woken up to the fact that I've got a lot of poor people in my country and I can't afford to feed them and I can't give them land because it's already taken up. Well, I've only got this, many, this much land. How can I, get, how can I take these people and, and give them something to do that will make money? And you know you need no land to keep bees? You can keep bees on your roof or in your backyard and you can make money and you can make money and I don't have to do anything except train you how to keep bees. And then I can give you the equipment, and then I will buy that honey from you, and I will sell it to the United States at 40 cents a pound. You will make money, I'll make money. The importer in the U.S. will make money, and everybody's happy except the people who have to eat it. Right? So that is another thing coming into what's going on in, in all of this electronic stuff, is the fact that there's just more people out there keeping bees, so we, the competition keeps getting weirder. There's Apis Protect. These are people from Ireland. These are the people who really use the cloud. They've got now they've got machines in South Africa and the United States and South America and most of Europe. And what they're doing, they are in the analysis stage right now. We talked to them on, on our podcast last week. And they're in the analysis stage. They're gathering data from all of these places and they're looking at what does this sound mean and what is what's happening when we hear this, when we see this. And what do we tell the beekeeper to do? Broodminder is just a simple temperature 
humidity CO2 weight thing. That's all it is, but that's all it is. You can look at your hive every day. Did it, uh, did it, did it, make, did it make weight or did it lose weight? If it lose weight, if I've got it in three hives and two of my hives gained weight and this one didn't, maybe that's all you need to know that you, you need to pay attention to what's going on out there. Uh, driverless truck. Do you have any of those out here yet? You will. Think how much money commercial beekeepers would save if they could put 450 colonies on a truck in South Dakota without a driver and send it to South Dakota and have it drive 24-7 until it got to the last mile in Idaho. And then they picked it up there and took it into California. It's that last mile thing that they're working on trying to, get, trying to perfect right now. The truck will take you there, almost there, and then someone needs to get involved. But from South Dakota to Idaho, there wasn't anybody on that truck. They didn't stop for gas. They didn't stop. Driverless truck all the way to Idaho. How much labor? Instead of having three people on that truck, when, when um, Ray Alvarez sends a truck of packages to our part of Northeast Ohio, and that's where most of our bees come from in Northeast Ohio. He's got three people in the truck, and he's got somebody back at the home base watching the, the, the widget thing that that truck is sending to a satellite so he knows where that truck is every minute of every day. Somebody's tracking that truck so that it doesn't stop in Las Vegas and spend some time there. So it doesn't stop overnight and, and uh, take a nap. He's watching that. Okay, there's four people tied up. Take those four people off the payroll. And suddenly you've got, I can send, I can make, I can do a lot more. So the driverless trucks, and they're coming. They're going to be here pretty soon. Talk about beeswax. We talked about, and you heard this this afternoon, uh, about the new beeswax coming out, the, art of the synthetic wax. They're doing the same thing in Europe with beeswax. They are making fully drawn comb with beeswax, and it is 3D printed. You've seen that? And that's how they're making it. They're, it's 3D printed. You pour wax in one end and out come sheets of uh, fully drawn comb. In, in Europe, it's beeswax. And here, it's not... Be well, the stuff that Better Bees bringing in is made in Europe. With, I'm sorry? You said it's not beeswax. But the better comb is the synthetic Right. The stuff that Better Bees bringing in is not beeswax, but it's made the same way. This is, this is 3D printed. And, and the guy who's doing this in Europe was looking for a, a customer in the U.S. I have no idea of the cost. I've got to believe it's expensive, but look at the cost of making fully drawn comb. How much honey does it cost to make a frame of comb? A bunch. You didn't harvest that honey. You didn't, weren't able to feed your bees with that honey. You had to make comb with it. So the cost of it, it's like that queen we talked about this morning. You want a $100 queen that will be alive next year? It's a trade-off, but it may be a trade-off you're, you're willing to make. Uh, housing, last topic, and then I'll be done. Housing, and I, I alluded to that this morning, is if people are looking at the beehive, they're looking at what Langstroff said works, and they're looking what the bees say work, and they're not nearly the same. And people right now are looking really, a lot of people are looking really hard at how can we make beehives better. That thin wall box with 0.7R, versus the tree at, at, at 11 R and, and, and. All the things that are going wrong. Let me rephrase that. All the things that could be better with the beehives that we're using. Could be better, should be better. 
a lot of the problems we have are the stress that we give bees that they don't need. They don't need to have to heat. They don't need to have. They shouldn't need to have to heat. They shouldn't need to have to cool. They should have. They should be surrounded by propolis. All of the things that are going on with with natural hives, people are beginning to look at. How can we do that? How can we manufacture that so that it's better for bees? So when I'm walking around April Monday, I'm seeing, I'm seeing honey sellers. I'm seeing people who are selling beekeeping food. I'm seeing people who are looking at different kinds of styles and materials used in hives. That is the future. That is what it's going to be. And that's why I go to the vendor area. The talks, I can read in a book tomorrow. The vendor area is what's going to be tomorrow and the next day and the next day. So I'm pretty much done here. That's the future. How do you like it? I'll put this up here one more time and then I'll do the the commercial up at the top there. Better uh, beekeepingtodaypodcast.com. There are two really good podcast people. Well, at least one other good podcast person here today. And if you drive to work, this is a good thing to do on your drive. Listen to either or both of them if you get the chance. And uh, you'll learn something. You'll have a good time. And it beats listening to politics.